Alright, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. I think it's fair to use the word devastation to talk about the times that we are living through. Um, I recently read a news article as I was browsing um, my news app the other day. And that article said that uh, the virus has now killed more people uh, in America than all of the casualties that Americans suffered in the Vietnam War. And that's a pretty amazing statistic if you think about it because the Vietnam War lasted for 10 years or somewhere around there, um, many, many years. But this virus has taken its toll in the way that it has in a matter of weeks. And unlike the Vietnam War, where people are targeting the soldiers that we sent over there, this virus is targeting everybody in our nation. And so I think it's good to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about how righteous people, people who are trying to put our trust in God, how do we live through times like this? We're going to look at a passage from the Old Testament um, that covers several chapters. And this passage as a whole is a context about God's international judgment that he is bringing on the nations. And so I want to make it clear from the beginning of this that, like other people have said, like I think Mo preached in his sermon not too long ago about the will of God, you know, I am not saying in this lesson that I am convinced that this virus is the direct judgment of God on our country or other countries. Um, I would not be surprised if it was, but I cannot say that because I'm not behind the scenes spiritually uh, like God is. But having said that, I think it is appropriate to look at these passages and ask the question, okay, but what principles can we get out of this for how we should live through a devastating time? So that's how we're going to approach this together. And what we're going to eventually drive at is this idea that righteous people are called upon to have a single-minded uh, devotion to the Lord, regardless of whether his will uh, makes sense to us at the time or not. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 24, and let's read the, the first 13 verses of this passage and, and think about what's going on in this time of desolation that he's talking about here. Um, we're going to just start with the first three verses and stop there. Just make the point that he's saying it's hitting everybody in the picture here. Look at this. Verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. You know, I think from the very beginning, uh, I've seen and heard a lot of people make the point that this virus shows no distinction. Uh, you know, and certainly we could say that there are 
certain groups of our society that are more high risk than others. But really, regardless of whether you are rich or poor, um, regardless of whether uh, you are generally healthy or generally sick or you're young or old, people across all demographic lines are being affected by this. And even if, as most of our congregation has not gotten a virus, even if it's true that you don't actually physically have it, this is still affecting you in other ways. We're affected when we see other people who are suffering by it, um, especially our brothers and sisters, either here or other places. Um, so there are economic impacts, there are emotional impacts. Uh, this is truly a universal experience that we're living through here. And so isn't this the same point that Isaiah is making in this very passage about this desolation that's coming over everybody that he's talking to um, in the near future? You know, you look at how it's not just ordinary people. It's not just the, the slave or the maid who are going to feel this. It's also the master. Um, it's also the priest. It's also the mistress. And it's all, it's it's going to hit people on both sides of the economy. It's going to hit the seller and the buyer. It's going to hit the borrower and the lender, etc. So nobody is going to escape from this. And you and you keep reading in the passage, and it's going to make this point that's going to sound familiar to us too. That normal society is just going to break down. Um, let's look here, starting in verse four. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt, therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left, the wine mourns, the divine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Social distancing, Old Testament style here. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. So notice what's happening to the place that Isaiah is describing here. In verse 7 and in verse 9, he's talking about people who are making alcohol their refuge. They're taking in wine because that's their safe place. Well, what happens when the wine dries up? Well, then the singing is gone. The gladness is gone. Um, the joy that they felt when they were in that substance is, is no longer the case. All of the restaurants, the movie theaters, 
the the parties have all shut down. There's no Mardi Gras. There's no Oktoberfest. There's no anything that normally happens in a jubilant, revelry kind of way in culture because everything is now gone. Notice that verse eight: the tambourines, the noise of the jubilant, the lyre, these musical instruments. Nobody's doing that anymore because this desolation has come and it's just broken down the way things are. Verse 10. Verse 10. They're all shut up in their houses. I mean, can, can we identify with all of the things that are happening in this passage? Uh, verse 11. People are actually going out into the street and throwing a fit because there's no more of what they wanted, what they used to have before. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> so you look at all the levels of what's going on here, wow. and we can see at least to some extent, or not to the extreme extent of this passage, but we can see kind of what's going on in our culture is what he's describing here in Isaiah 24. Uh, so several months ago, before this pandemic hit, you know, everything was available to us. Uh, the economy was humming, jobs were abundant, at least for the most part. Um, you could go out and you could do anything you wanted to do, and now... These things are being stripped away, and God is now uncovering um, the hearts of everybody in our culture and, and saying, hey, where do you really trust? Where is the source of your joy? So notice how this desolation is affecting everybody, and it is just kind of breaking down all levels of society. But where are the righteous people in all this? So that's where, where he's going to start talking about them in in verse 14. So let's let's think about 14 through 16. The righteous response, first of all, is to acknowledge that our source of joy doesn't shrink away and shrivel and die or get removed from us. 14 through 16. They, God's people, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to God. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed with betrayal the traitors have betrayed. So, do you see the contrast here? This is so neat. So, in verses 8 and 9, notice again that in the world, the singing has stopped. The revelry is gone. The joy, the jubilation, everybody getting excited, that's now dampens. That's now gone. But, for righteous people, here in this passage, they are singing. They, they do have joy. That has not been tamped down because they always have something to sing about. Uh, because they always have the majesty, as he says here, of God to hold in their hearts and minds something that they can look at and see, ah, there is something that can truly satisfy me. You know, it's, it's neat to think about how the majesty of God if we are growing in our relationship with him, it's never diminished. If anything, it just increases. The more and the more we look at God and see how wonderful he is and satisfying to our souls, 
the more that's just going to increase and get bigger, not smaller, um, as physical things can do uh, in, in the, the life that we have. Um, notice where this praise is coming from also. Did you notice how when you look at verse 14, there's shouting from the west, um, uh, but also in the east, they're giving glory to God. So you think about the fact that no matter where we are in our journey of life, all of us have a personal view or a perspective on how good God is to us personally, but also in the lives of other people around us, the things that he's doing in the world. Uh, but do we actually notice those things? Those things aren't there if we just have eyes to see them. But Because uh, also look at verse 16. Not only are the righteous people singing, but they're listening to the voices of other people who have the same mindset and are doing the same things as they are. Look at verse 16 again. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise. That's what they're concentrating on. We hear that. And you think about right now, there are so many voices, so many voices that we could hear right now. So we could hear the voices of those in the media and maybe in our own personal relationships that are voices of complaint. Why hasn't the economy reopened yet? The way that the governors and the way that the administration in Washington is handling all this is just ridiculous. And, and all the standards that are being put upon us and all the things going on, um, you know, and everything is just dropping out when we look at our culture. You know, there are so many things that people are saying <laughs> in a complaining way uh, that we could listen to. Um, and you think about that there are other voices out there that are voices of information, that we could listen to as well. And those are a little bit better to listen to because those are voices saying, okay, here's what the virus is. Here is the proper response to it. We need to wear masks. We need to do this. We need to do that. Um, but you know what the best voices to listen to are the ones that are praising God. Those are the social media posts that we should linger on in our minds. Those are the conversations that we should pursue. Those are the thoughts that ought to roll around in our mind. Not so much, I hate what's going on, or here is exactly what I need to do to get through this time, um, but let me praise God. Now, the, those In a time of devastation, that's what righteous people are primarily concerned about. Not so much the economy, not so much the health, of their family, although that's certainly important, not so much what's happening in the world, but how can I thank God for this, for what is happening? Um, because you think about how the primary voices in our heads are going to become the primary voices that come out of our mouths. Out of the abundance of, our, of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, Jesus said that. So we need to be careful about what we're feeding ourselves and acknowledge the unshrinking source of our joy. Something else that we need to do is we need to praise God for his plans even when they hinder us and our plans. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at two passages kind of back-to-back -back with each other. The first is in 25, 
1 through 3, and the next is 26, 7 through 9. Look at this. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Let's skip over to the next chapter, 7 through 9. Chapter 26, 7 through 9. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desires of of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So think about what Isaiah is saying here in these couple of passages, especially in the second one. He's saying, you know, we who are trying to follow God when we live in the world just like everybody else, we, to some extent, get affected by whatever happens in the world. Um, but God's people should be able to see, in a way that other people can't, the good that can come from God's plans being carried out, even though they're sometimes painful for us. Because if you look at 25 verse 3, where he's talking about the nations, strong nations, ruthless people who didn't think much about you and thought more about violence, they're going to give glory to you now. And then you think about chapter 26, verse 9, kind of a similar thought of this is a time when all people in the world can learn righteousness. Um, that's, a, that's a really neat perspective on all of this because this moment for us is hindering us in all kinds of ways. In some large and some small, and some that don't affect us very much. But in all these things, are we remembering the bigger picture of what's going on here and how the Lord can use this for his glory? This time is giving millions, if not billions, of people an opportunity to think more seriously about their lives than they perhaps ever have before. And so are we simply praying as I think we should pray that God would take away the virus and that it would just go poof off the earth, um, it would certainly be good uh, for our health uh, if, if that happened. But spiritually speaking, while it's here, what is God doing with it? Um, are we just concerned about getting our lives back to normal? Well, I really missed my routine. I really wish uh, I really wish that Still I could get back into like the, the same things that I once did and once enjoyed. I think all of us feel like that. Died. But this is a time when the world can learn righteousness. Uh, and and obviously not everybody is going to. And some people are going to turn a blind eye to this. Um, perhaps many. Because and Isaiah actually goes on to talk about that because in verse 11 of chapter 26 uh, or verse 10 and 11 he says yeah, wicked people, they get favor shown to them. Uh, they're not going to acknowledge that. They're not going to turn. Some people are just not going to see it. Um, they're not going to do anything about that. But for the people out there who are interested, they might turn. Um, 
just on a really practical level, something that I rejoice over is uh, I've got a buddy who preaches in uh, New York, and he mentioned uh, recently that the number of people who are going to his Bible studies now, uh, which have all been taken online, as is true of everybody, uh, the number of people attending those has now been doubled from what it was before the pandemic started. So more and more people are interested in the gospel message. And praise God for that. That's wonderful. Uh, And so if this is God's plan to shake the nations so that people start thinking about him more, then we need to praise him for that. We need to thank him. People are interested. Uh, all those guys. It was, in, it was in one of the reports. Uh, to him be the glory. Okay, so something else that that we need to do as, as a response, uh, as we are trying to live righteously through this, is we need to wait for the Lord's eternal banquet. Because that's where the true luxuries are going to be. Look at, look at back at chapter 25, at this beautiful section here. Chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Economies dry up, governments fail us, people do weird stuff. And we look at that and we shake our heads, but God has true delights in store that are never going to end. And and unlike the wine that runs out for the revelers back there in chapter 24 that we first read, where things just kind of collapse and, the, and everything dries up, there's no more wine to drink, look here, in chapter 25... God has some well-aged wine, along with this feast, for us to partake in. And evidently, there's there's a lot of it because it's a feast for all the nations. Everybody and anybody who wants to can come to this. Uh, just as a quick New Testament connection, do you remember what Jesus' first miracle was <laughs> in, in John's Gospel? When he kick-starts his ministry... And he has a a conversation with his mom, who comes to him at a wedding feast and says, hey, you need to do something about this, son. He says, well, my time's not yet come for me to show myself to everybody, but I'll do this for you. Remember that that miracle? He created wine. Uh, I don't think that was an accident. I don't think that was coincidence. When you think back to passages like this in Isaiah, that this is the feast of the Lord that he's going to make available uh, to everybody who wants it. So what are we waiting for? 
What are we really waiting for? Um, are we waiting with bated breath primarily for the reopening of the economy? Mm-hmm. Are we waiting primarily for a, a semblance of normality to our lives? Or um, in our thoughts and in our conversations and in our social media posts and in everything that we do and think, are we primarily now being reminded of the fact that we should wait for heaven? And that even if the virus should just drop out of everybody's systems tomorrow, even if the stock market soared, even if all the stores are full again tomorrow, even if everything just returns to normal, there's not going to be a banquet feast like this for us until we reach eternity. Amen. Got to be reminded of that. Um, and it takes, sometimes it takes situations like this to shake us up enough to where we understand where our chart, our hearts truly are. Yeah. He's right. He's right. So death, he says here in the text, death, tears, and reproach, all going to be removed. But that requires waiting for them. So the righteous response is also to wait for the Lord's eternal banquet. And the last point I'm going to make about this is that the righteous response is to allow the Lord to purify us in our time of seclusion. Here's another interesting passage. Go to chapter 26 and start reading with me in verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we were because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. There it is again, singing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its flame. So trials, as we read about in many different places in the Bible, trials can have a purifying effect on the people of God who go through them with the right kind of response. And I think that's what he's calling upon God's people to do here. In the first part of the passage, um, we're not going to talk about all of that, but essentially I think what he's saying is we as God's people understand that we need to be cleaned up, that we have kind of partaken in uh, the, the world and its pleasures, and so we recognize there's sin in us that needs to be fixed. You know, we were pregnant, but we gave birth to wind. This is talking about the futility of sin uh, that all of us kind of struggle with in this life. He's saying, we need help with that. And so what does God say? Well, guess what? I'm going to resurrect you. 
Um, when he's talking about in verse 19, dead bodies come into life, that is the New Testament promise right there. And then in 20 and 21, in this really interesting passage where he says, okay, you guys need to shut yourselves up in your houses until this nastiness has gone by. Um, what he's saying here, when you combine all this together, is we need God to use this, this time of seclusion to make us more his own. Um, when I read 20 and 21, two big Old Testament passages come to my mind. You remember what happened in the Passover when everybody everybody killed their lamb and they got the blood of the lamb and they they smeared it all over the doorposts of their of their houses and the doors um, and then they all went into their house and they shut the door uh, because remember the angel of death was passing over Egypt and smiting all the firstborn of the land who didn't have that blood on the doorposts. And you think about what happened in the flood. You remember when Noah built his ark? Uh, the text says that God said, okay, it's time for everybody to go in, and then God shut the door until the flood happened, and all the rain, all the floodgates burst open. Eventually the waters receded, and then they could come out. God uses times like this. Um, this has kind of been the pattern throughout Bible history of, of righteous people getting sequestered, getting getting safe, uh, and, and really thinking about what's going on in their lives, in the lives of people around them. So this is a time to ask God to show us the areas of our heart where he needs to save us, where he needs to purify our souls. I think um, a question that a lot of us have been trying to ask during this time is, what can I do to be useful and productive during this time? That's a great question to ask. But we also need to flip that around and ask, what can I allow God to do to me during this time to make me more his servant and less somebody who dabbles with sin? So when we look at all these things together, I know that this is quite a list for us to try to get into our minds, but I think that the thread that runs through all of these righteous responses is this single-minded focus on the Lord, even if the Lord's will is puzzling to us at the time. Um, some of you who are familiar with this general area of Isaiah are probably wondering why we haven't talked about 26 verse 3 yet. And the reason for that was because I was saving it. <laughs> because this is this is what ties everything together, where he says in 26 3, after he said, we have a strong city, he sets up salvation for us, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. He says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. This reminds me so much of the passage that Mo quoted for us. I think it was the last passage that he quoted in Hebrews 12. 
where the Hebrew writer, after he's gotten done talking about Jesus to all the extent that he has, he gets to chapter 12 and he says, okay, let's get rid of sin. The nonsense of the weights that get put upon our souls. Let's cast those off. I'm going to read that to you. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfected perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, why is it that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus in times of distress and trial? It's because in Jesus' time of distress and trial, guess where he was fixing his eyes? Joy that was set before him? In other words, us. He's fixing our eyes on us during the cross. Therefore, we need to fix our eyes on him during the course of our lives, and especially when we are in need of endurance. Because isn't that what he says here? He says, we have to run with endurance, because what did God do when he was on the cross? Jesus endured this terrible suffering on this piece of wood for us. And now he waits for us to join him in glory so that we can all eat the banquet feast together that Isaiah was talking about back there in chapter 26. Amen. And so every time we eat the supper of the Lord, and every week we take the fruit of the vine, and we take the bread representing his body, what we are doing is we're not just saying we believe that Jesus died and rose from, uh, from the grave for our sins. We're also saying we believe that a greater feast is coming and that we're going to sit at the table, we're going to be part of it, we're going to enjoy wine that never dries up. Do you have that kind of faith right now? as we're living through this very weird trial in the world. Where is your hope?